0: Now, in regards to restored families and reconciled relationships, I have seen it, and there are some who would doubt it and would say, well, it's you're just waiting, you're just biding time. But I have seen some miraculous things happen in the hearts of men. Mm.
1: Welcome to the Hope and Help Project, the podcast that cultivates compassionate biblical conversations about life's challenging problems. I am your host, Christine Chapel, and I'm so glad you're here to join in on today's conversation with Reverend, author, and certified biblical counselor, Chris Moles. Today, we're going to be talking about the heart of domestic abuse and how the gospel of Jesus Christ invites controlling men to enjoy healthy, God-honoring relationships. If this is your first time listening to the show, be sure to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting FaithfulSparrow.com forward slash project. The link is posted in the show description and by visiting that page, you can learn all about the mission of the podcast as well as view links to other interviews we've produced on a variety of topics. Okay, let's get started with today's conversation. As I mentioned, my guest is Reverend Chris Moles. He is a certified biblical counselor, as well as a certified group facilitator in domestic violence intervention and prevention. Chris is the author of The Heart of Domestic Abuse, Gospel Solutions for Men Who Use Violence and Control in the Home, and the founder of PeaceWorks University, a membership website that exists to help train, commission, and support biblical counselors and others to address the problem of domestic violence with the gospel of peace. So welcome, Chris, to the show.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure.
1: You know, I love that your ministry really focuses on Confronting the evil of domestic violence in order to promote healthy god-honoring relationships, how did you come to have such a passion for pursuing those caught in the grip of domestic violence?
0: Well, you know, it uh, I've told this story many times, but the uh, the readers digest version I guess would be I was working part-time as a pastor in a small town. It's not uncommon for us to to be bi-vocational and I was working at the time about 12-13 years ago as an educator within corrections for a local uh, alternative sentencing program. I worked with mostly drug offenders doing parenting classes and such and it was uh, a really great ministry opportunity and it was in that context that one of the officers uh, who used to be a victim advocate uh, came to me about starting a batterer intervention program. I was really reluctant, uh, hesitant, Finally, after uh, some haggling and talking and uh, conversations, I agreed. Uh, within a couple months, I was at the police academy receiving some training and then thrown right into it. And so that was, I don't know, I want to say 2006, I started working with men convicted of domestic violence crimes, just as a another job opportunity, and it quickly turned into a ministry as I began to see the real clear overlap between my work as a biblical counselor and a pastor and the needs that were being presented uh, within the context of domestic violence intervention. And so it became a real hand in glove kind of ministry that has obviously expanded as God's allowed me to speak and work with the local church
1: you know, because your ministry is very specific to men who abuse their strength or position in one way or another in order to victimize someone who is weaker, do you experience a lot of pushback from the Christian community regarding whether or not abusers can actually experience gospel-empowered heart change?
0: You know, I have. I, I, it, that was one of the big surprises, to be honest with you. Uh, when I first got into Uh, speaking and writing and working, you know, responding to requests, because what had happened was, as I became more vocal, as I became more, um, had more opportunities within the church, of course, that led to more, obviously. And, you know, as that became more prominent, I was really shocked by that. And even more so maybe by the level of hostility about it. And to me, it's, it's, I get it to a degree and I don't know how much time we wanna we wanna spend unpacking it, but you know, there's a real within the church uh a um a real love for or passion about uh areas and issues of mental health. And sometimes I think there are some um some delineation that needs to be made between some diagnosis and um problems that people are having. And there are some diagnoses that I've ran across working with men, like intermittent explosive anger disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, that initially, when I started the work, were simply, even within the secular world, were simply describing the problem, right? He gets explosively angry every once in a while, uh, or he is incredibly selfish. And those were just helping us identify the symptoms, but no one early on in the work said, well, just because someone's been diagnosed narcissistic, that means they're irredeemable. Uh, It was just describing symptoms. A shift happened, and it's been really embraced by much of the church at some point to where those labels are almost, um, unfortunately, as resolute as scripture in some folks' minds. And so the thought of working with somebody who is considered narcissistic or, um, um disordered in some way uh is troubling to a lot of folks. And I think some of that comes from we have a high sense of justice as we should. And we feel like that somehow, and this is a theological issue, I think, that somehow the work of the cross, that Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, if someone accepts that and lives in that, that somehow that is less just than God's wrath. But God's wrath was poured out on Christ, um, and it is as just as if that person were punished. And so I think we need, we need to really reclaim justice and understand the, the penalty that Christ took to make redemption available to everybody.
1: So building off of that, then, you talked about, you know, anger as being part of, you know, this this problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Do you think that domestic abuse is simply an anger management issue or is there some something deeper going on?
0: Well, obviously, I would say that there's something deeper happening, and one of the big missteps, I think, in this work over the years uh, has been the, um, the overemphasis of anger. You know, like I gave you the example of the intermittent explosive anger disorder. Well, really, it's not anger that that guy is presenting with or that that guy's real problem is. That is just the tactic that is most convenient. You know, I jokingly say with one guy I worked with who had uh, been diagnosed with IEAD, you know, he said, you know, I, am I have IEAD and I said, "Um, so what does that mean? Every once in a while, he said, I get really angry. And I said, let me guess, is it when you don't get what you want? And he said, exactly. Well, that's not an anger issue. That's a heart issue, right? And anger is a good tactic to get what we want. And I always say that if we only address anger problems or anger management issues, we run the risk of cultivating polite abusers who only commit respectable sins, because there are so many ways uh, to coerce and control. And really, emotionally speaking, the vast majority of men that I work with are not driven by anger. Anger is a tactic. The emotion that's most clearly presented in their life is fear. Fear and that fear is almost always bolstered in pride. You know, fear of failing, fear of being found out, what the world would call insecurity. And I once heard Ellen Pence from the Duluth Abuse Intervention Project say, and I thought this was so well put, that batterers are not insecure. Like, insecure people don't batter, but batterers will be insecure. And what she meant by that was, it's not the insecurity that cultivates the violence. It's the violence that leads to insecurity, because if you're trying to control everyone and everything around you, of course, you're going to be afraid of losing that control. And it's going to create a real heightened sense of fear. Of course, that fear is built on our own ego and pride, as opposed to good fear or healthy fear.
1: We know that our horizontal relationships are often accurate reflections of our vertical relationship with God. So what do you think spiritual rebellion has to do with a lot of you know, the heart issues behind domestic abuse?
0: Yeah, that's, uh, actually the real crux of the problem. I think if we are willing as believers to hone in on that very question, we'll, we'll find longer lasting solutions because what is at play in the heart of a violent man or an abusive man is pride. And we can see this in scriptural narrative like, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, King David, King Saul, where power, right, was abused, uh, because of their own pride, their own ego, their own entitlement. This is what's happening in the heart of a violent or abusive man, is that um, they are number one, right? And so there needs to be a reorienting um, based upon what Scripture teaches us. So a couple you know, ways to flesh that out. I like to use the great commandment with, with men that I work with. Love the Lord your God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. While there's only two commandments in that passage, there are three perspectives. And if we come to, um, we come to that passage with a higher or, a, or too high a view of self uh, and too low a view of God, then we can't possibly live it out. God must be in his proper place as sovereign um, and in charge as number one. Others must be seen as people to love, not people to use. And we have to have a healthy, what Paul would call a sober or right Uh, view of ourself. And what tends to happen with men who are violent and abusive is that they are playing the role of God. And God then is a secondary servant to their wills, and others are tools that they use to get what they want. And so the irony of uh, discussing power and control and abuse with men who claim to be Christians, which is very common in the work that I do, especially among the tribe that I find myself in most, which is usually Reformed or reformed esh mm-hmm. circles, is the real lip service given to, say, the doctrines of grace, but a real practical disconnect in how it's lived out. And I can't tell you the number of conversations I've had with men who claim to love the doctrines of grace, for instance, and yet blatantly defy the uh, doctrine of the sovereignty of God in the way they control and live their lives. And uh, practically speaking, there's no evidence that God is sovereign. They are sovereign, and that needs to be corrected. And so that's really at the heart of all of this is that God is nowhere to be found. And if he is, he's a a deconstructed and reconstructed faux false idol of God as opposed to the one true living God.
1: Well, what you've unpacked there just now seems like an awful lot of work that would probably take an awful long time to detangle. Um, Definitely worthwhile, of course, because we want to be pursuing God um, and growing in Christlikeness, but uh, definitely challenging nonetheless. And so I want to ask... In your experience, what's the typical process an abuser will travel through in order to finally come to admit that he has a problem and, you know, starts to proactively take steps toward restoration? Can you give us an idea as to what that journey looks like?
0: Yeah, I can, I can paint with a broad brush because I think the, the misnomer there is typical. Uh, my friend John Henderson puts it this way. He says, if you've seen one case of abuse, you've seen one case of abuse. And while there are so many overlaps and consistencies, the heart of each individual perpetrator and the, the journey that they're going to go on is distinct because people are distinct, right? And so there's um, not really a typical path. I'll tell you some common things that are present uh, in the process. Number one is consequences. Honestly, I, I think without consequences, uh, it's very unlikely – to see uh, an individual who's been practicing abuse to make any kinds of change. Uh, Another way to put it is intervention. I've never seen anyone transition from harm to health without a solid intervention. Because left to their own devices, heading the direction that they're headed, uh, it's a very comfortable way to live for the abuser. right? Obviously it's devastating, destructive for the victim, for the abuser, as long as no one's standing in his path, uh, it is a, uh, very comfortable way to live. So we often, you, you know, use that pithy little phrase that we are to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable in this work. And so one of the things that I have seen most beneficial, uh, is consequences. Uh, however, you know, consequences without heart change, uh, could lead to again, that polite abuse or, Um, maybe just behavior modification, which is not something we want to shoot for. Certainly, we want men to be safer, uh, but that doesn't mean that they are sanctified. And so we want to call them to repentance and so on. So I tend to uh, operate in three waves. Obviously, consequences are usually what send guys to me, praise God. But I usually operate in three waves. I tell men, we're going to focus on information, transformation, and reformation. At the information stage, I'm going to teach you about the dynamics and impact of domestic violence and abuse, and then we're going to learn your story and place yourself into that context, into the narrative. We want to have a solid education so that we first, we know what domestic violence is according to God's word and what we see in society. And then two, we want to accurately understand and acknowledge how you have been participating in that. Causing harm to others. So that includes your abusive behaviors, the impact or effects of those behaviors, the motivations, and so on. Second is transformation. We want to introduce the gospel to that abusive pattern that you've been participating in. So if it's been years of verbal, emotional, mental, and occasional physical abuse, then we want to apply the gospel to that, the positional aspects, the provisional aspects and of course the practical aspects of the gospel so that you can receive not just forgiveness of your sins quote unquote but new life in Christ to to see change and then lastly is the reformation stage which is akin to progressive sanctification we're calling you to repentance and now we're calling you to evidence it through a new life that's where the behavioral motivational and belief shifts happen but I don't call people to change until we've thoroughly educated them on what the problem really is and then called them to gospel repentance. And so that's kind of the process uh, from my perspective. But every guy's journey and step in that is different. And I want to make sure your listeners understand that it's also not a high percentage game. And this is one of the reasons why there's such hostility in some regards to the work that I do. Uh, It is not common. Uh, for men to change. They are much more comfortable. Uh, men love darkness rather than light. So there's a great deal more comfort in uh, remaining rebellious than there is in the hard work of acknowledging your sin and moving forward. And, uh, and so I think that's a fair statement to make that abuse is a very difficult sin um, to move on from, especially if your goal is reconciliation. But we can talk about that in a moment.
1: You know, when I think of domestic abuse, the most prominent picture in my mind comes as a physical form. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But I know there are other types of forms. I'd like to take a few minutes to kind of jump in to what those look like. So how Mm -hmm. do you counsel couples, you know, in a very general way in cases of verbal abuse? Do you do you bring scriptures in that address Mm -hmm. the problem? Um, You know, Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I do, and this is going to deviate from the question a little, but I promise I'm going to to come back, is I see abuse, in particular domestic abuse, which is the world I live in the most, as a construct. And so I see it as a large blanket or umbrella issue. And uh, so even if you take that image of an umbrella and there's those different points that stretch the material, um, each of those points could represent a tactic. And so verbal abuse, if present in the relationship, uh, is something that I would absolutely want to address, but I don't want to be naive to think that that's all I'm going to address. If verbal abuse is present, that is using my words, like using my power and my words to coercively control my partner through fear and threat. If I'm doing that, then more than likely I'm participating in what we would call emotional abuse. And more than likely I'm doing some other tactic, like using the children or minimizing my own behavior or possibly even physical assault. And since abuse is always on an escalating pattern, if something hasn't come up yet, it probably will. And so the first thing I recommend for the folks that I train is, um, you know, don't swing at the first pitch. You got to let some pitches go by you to to see what is actually being thrown in total. So you really need to see the whole picture. And so if verbal abuse is the presenting problem, then you can probably rest assured there's more that's going to uncover. So I usually don't address one particular aspect until I get a clear a picture as possible, and I put it all in that construct, right? So let's go back to, to the specifics of verbal abuse. So one of the things I would want to see is not just the – I want to know the words, the tone, the time, the place, the manner, all the ways in which he's verbally assaulting or verbally vomiting on his wife. And then uh, in addition to that, I want him to be able to understand the sinfulness of that. And so some scriptures that could be helpful, um, one that I use a lot is uh, Ephesians chapter 4. And in Ephesians 4, somewhere in the late 20s, uh, 27, 28 – Uh, Paul begins to talk about let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. And we in the Christian world have kind of reduced that to, you know, what's your vocabulary? Don't say bad words. But the context is clear. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up. And so the language Paul's talking about is demeaning and cutting and language that tears down. There's a spiritual consequence to that type of language. And the spiritual consequence is that it grieves the Holy Spirit. Um, and we can go into all of that. Theologically, people made in the image of God are made emotionally, relationally, and physically. And so you're, you're literally attacking the image of God in that person and the spirit of God that lives within that person through your verbal assault. And so I, I usually start there with the sinfulness of the behavior. I try to highlight specifically what's being said, then draw on the motives What is it that you wanted when you called your wife that name? What is it that you hoped she would do? What did you hope that she would not do? How did calling her that name benefit you? Um, How did it affect her? And so I'm trying to pull on that rope to not only highlight the sinfulness of the behavior, but the sinfulness of the motivation. And then we, again, then go down to the heart. What does that say about your relationship with Jesus? What does that say about your understanding of, of righteousness about the scripture And what is it that God is now calling you to? And so that might be one way I would address verbal abuse, but certainly in the greater context of every aspect of abuse and that desire for control and that misuse or abuse of power.
1: Well, what would you say about manipulation? You know, Does that qualify to fit under the umbrella of domestic abuse? Would you expand on what that might look like and how you address that behavior with a counselee?
0: Yeah, it may. I think that's the easiest question, the easiest way to answer the question. Manipulation may and often is part of the abusive construct. And uh, it is possible, right, I've dealt with manipulative, let's say, for instance, with wives. I've dealt with manipulative wives who've tried to use manipulation with their husband, but they didn't have power. They weren't exerting power. There was no culture of fear. It was sinful but it wasn't really abusive. You know what I mean? And at the end of the day, it was like, we need to address the sin of manipulation, but no one was living in fear. No one was living under threat because that power dynamic wasn't there. So it may, or it may not. That's why it's important again, to see abuse, uh, as the pattern of behavior. You know, it's an abuse of power manifested in selfishly motivated patterns of behavior designed to, um, extend or maintain control over one's partner. And so often manipulation is a major part of the story. And uh, I would say I would go, I would looking, I would go looking for the words that sound a lot like it. So if I see a husband, for instance, manipulating his wife, I'm, I'm going to look for manipulation, but I'm also going to pull the rope and look for isolation, intimidation, right? Minimization. I'm going to look for those other ways in which he can control because I want to build a clearer picture of the pattern and get all the fruit on the tree uh, before I start taking a deep dive because it is possible, right? As I've already stated, that that could be the one issue. Um, But certainly I want to make sure um, that we're dealing with the right thing because I could miss it the other way too. If I only address manipulation and he is constantly criticizing He's using uh, gaslighting or crazy making. He's using economic force. And I don't touch all of those. And he stops manipulating. Well, that's great, except she's still suffering under the weight of abuse. He's just not using the tactic that I've caught him on.
1: Gosh, this is just such a heartbreaking topic to discuss. And I know your main ministry focuses on, you know, um, the abusers and not Mm -hmm. necessarily the victims. Mm -hmm. And I know that the church's track record on handling victims, you know, sincerely seems to be lackluster. Mm -hmm. Uh, We know there aren't always happy endings to be had when it comes to domestic abuse, but I wondered if you might share how you personally have seen families restored or relationships renewed as a result of the truth and grace found in Jesus Christ.
0: Sure. And, you know, with, um, with the work that I do, even the work with perpetrators, I, I think it's important if any of your listeners have considered getting into perpetrator work, whether it's sexual abuse or domestic abuse, that I see that as victim work, um, and, and I'll tell you why as I connect it to the answer to the question. Um, before I talk about restored relationships, I think it's helpful to state what we count as a win around here. So we see a successful intervention as an intervention that brings, it, uh, brings the conflict or brings the problem to a conclusion, uh, meaning so many churches, and this is one of the big ways that churches have been mishandling these cases, is that churches will drag this out for years trying to investigate, trying to determine the validity of a claim, you know, starting with discipline against the perpetrator, but being manipulated and coerced into disciplining the victim. And it has just been a heartbreaking scene to watch the mishandling of the problem. And to me, one of the greatest violations is not coming to a conclusion. And so when we conduct an intervention, when we work alongside a church, one of our goals is to get to a conclusion. And we call that a success. And a conclusion is usually one of two things. Number one, he uh, acknowledges his sin uh, and pivots. He claims initial repentance. And then we work with the team uh, to see him evidence that out, right? Fruit of repentance. We want to see that evidenced out. That's, those are the great ones. And those have the best chance at uh, what you're alluding to in the question, restoration, reconciliation. The other success is if he remains obstinate or doubles down, or if he tries to lie to us, or if he self-deceives and he gets exposed. Um, Those are successes, too, because we as the church have something that's called uh, church discipline and excommunication, and we can effectively address the sin at that point. If he remains unrepentant, that's a win, too. I would rather everyone come to repentance But what has been unhealthy and dangerous in the church is that we call men to repentance and we accept worldly sorrow rather than demanding godly sorrow. And in turn, we leave victims in dangerous situations. And uh, that's one of the big, big areas that we try to work in is helping churches get to a point of conclusion in weeks or months as opposed to years uh, dragging this out. Now in regards to restored families and reconciled relationships I have seen it and there are some who would doubt it would say well it's you're just waiting you're just biding time but I have seen some miraculous things happen in the hearts of men I will tell you that the earlier uh, that you catch it uh the the uh before they go too far down the path I've seen greater success meaning if a if a husband recognizes his behavior uh, if he takes admonishment well, then we have a greater chance of seeing restoration towards the end. If it's escalated to a high lethality rate, um, including you know uh, displaying weapons, strangulation, uh, severe physical violence, sexual violence, then I see a lot less hope in the long-term restoration, not so much change, because we've seen that, men who've been restored to God, but have to acknowledge that they destroyed their own relationship. Uh, a couple couple things I would address about the restored reconciled peace real quick. Uh, in fact, I can do this by sharing um, a quick plug. One of my uh, former clients, his, he just released a book entitled There is Hope. And the subtitle is One Man's Journey from Abusive Anger to Redemptive Grace. And what I appreciate about the subtitle is how it accurately puts it in perspective. Um, Jim's story, uh, his name is Jim Maxwell, and Jim's story is an exceptional story, but the subtitle's accurate. His story is his story. It's just one man's journey. And what I love about what Jim says in the book is he highlights some of the clumsy and dangerous ways that he responded Uh, early on in the process, trying to bring about reconciliation before he experienced transformation. And then he gives a lot of credit to his wife, how gracious she was to not accept that, but to hold him accountable, how his church was involved, how I was involved, how other counselors were involved, um, to continue to hold him accountable. And now he and his wife uh, function in a ministry capacity, working with other couples Uh, who are in abusive and destructive relationships. So that would be one example. Um, Others, without getting too – because they haven't gone public where Jim has has written the book, um, include um, real um, demonstrative evidence like uh, renewing their marriage vows to real slow um, evidentiary change, like the one couple who got divorced and then began dating um, after the divorce went through. Um, just as part of that evidentiary evidentiary repentance period. And so they're always going to vary. I would encourage people to be optimistic, but be cautiously optimistic, be realistic, and hold high views of uh, accountability and repentance rather than easy believism and quick solutions.
1: Well, thank you for kind of broadening our scope of what success looks like in these situations. I think that that's great um, that you did that. And I will be happy to make the book link available, the link, uh, the book Mm -hmm. that you just mentioned Mm -hmm. by your former client, make that available in the show notes as well. If anyone's interested in checking it out, I want to, we've got a time for a couple more questions. Mm And so I want to ask if there's someone listening who is currently in an abusive situation. So maybe they're the victim in terms of the, uh, the recipient of the abuse, or maybe they're the perpetrator. They're unsure about how how to go and get help, you know, what would your recommendations be? Can you share some suggestions and resources that might help them?
0: Yeah. So if you, if you are experiencing, um, tactics of power and control, if you are experiencing, uh, fear, intimidation, threats, or if you've experienced physical or sexual violence, uh, a good resource might be the domestic violence hotline, um, The hotline.org is the website, or 1-800-799-SAFE, which I think is 1-800-799-7233. And uh, that hotline has been a resource that's around for years that could get you in contact with advocates in your area or just give you a safe person to talk to. Now, if you choose to search online for resources, uh, please understand that – Abusers—it's not uncommon for abusers to check search history, to know how to track information. So make sure you're doing things safely as you're searching. I think domestic violence shelters and advocates are tremendous resources in our communities. A couple other resources online—if you're—if um, you're a victim and you're looking for help and hope—Focus um, Ministries, the number one dot O-R-G has some of the best resources online uh, that I know of. Uh, Called to Peace uh, Ministries and Joy Forest has some great advocacy material. And then my friend Leslie Vernick at leslievernick.com has some uh, great material on emotional abuse. If you're a perpetrator, I wish I could say there was more out there, but there's just not. There's very limited resources. Uh, there are some assessments and basic help at Men's Center of Michigan. I think it's menscenter.org. There's my website, chrismoles.org, that has some blog posts and podcasts um, that might be helpful as you you search and as you think through. Um, And then seeking help from other men uh, or looking for and finding a batterer intervention program in your area that takes volunteers could be helpful if you come to come to that. But regardless, if you find yourself in this uh, environment, reach out to someone and have a conversation, you know, a spiritual friend, a pastor, um, um, somebody that you trust and have the conversation. You might not get great advice from everyone, but it is better to, to trust someone uh, than it is to remain in silence.
1: Well, thank you so much for providing those resources. Again, I will be sure, and everything that you've mentioned, I will, I will hunt down and make yeah. sure that the resources are available on the uh, on the show page and in the show description for anyone who's interested. Well, I'd like to ask you one more question. Every single episode, we close with a question geared at... Encouraging our audience and our listeners. Mm-hmm. And so I want to have you do the same. There may be mm-hmm. someone listening to this episode who currently struggles in the ways that we've been talking about. Maybe they are physically or verbally abusive to someone close to them and they have begun to feel convicted about it or they're fearful about what reaching out for help might look like or what it will require mm-hmm. of them long term. What would you say to that person to give them courage to take their next steps towards? repentance.
0: Absolutely. First uh, is own it. Absolutely wrap your arms around the sin that you've committed and own it, um, and then mourn and grieve that sin. You you may feel sad, especially if you've got caught, but I want to encourage you to really put that sadness, that sorrow to the test. Uh, Paul said in uh, 2 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 7, Uh, He tells us that godly sorrow brings repentance, but worldly sorrow brings death. And I've met with so many men over the years who have had feigned contrition, um, who have been sorry that they got caught, sorry that they were uncomfortable. And we've had to work through that passage that no godly sorrow has produced something in you. And Paul says for those who are genuinely repentant to the Corinthians, he's congratulating them on their repentance. And he says, you know, godly sorrow produced uh, this in you? What earnestness? So are you sincere? Is this sincerely about your rebellion against God and the harm that you've caused your partner? What eagerness to clear yourself? Do you really want? Um, are you eager? Are you willing? Are you ready to embrace a new life? Uh, what indignation? Do you hate your sin? Uh, what alarm? Are you, are you just shocked? at the way in which you've been behaving. What longing do you really want to change? What zeal are you passionate about it? And what vindication are you ready to do what it takes to clear the record, to set the record straight? And Paul said, in every way, like all of those previous ways, Corinthians, you've proved yourself. Um, This is a long process, and it's gonna require you to prove yourself, or maybe better put, to prove the power of God in you. Um, But you have to answer those questions. Right? Are you sincere? Are you eager? Are you angry at the right things? Are you shocked? Are you longing for change? Are you passionate? And are you wanting to set the record straight? Um, those things will be evident if godly sorrow is at work. And so really put that to the test. Don't, don't settle for worldly sorrow when godly sorrow is available to you. Those
1: are really incredible words of biblical wisdom, I think, challenging not only uh, the listener today, but even me, as I as I wrestle with my own you know sins and things that I want to have changed um, in my heart. So encouraging for everyone. Well, Chris, will you take just a quick minute and tell the audience about the best way they can stay connected with you and your ministry?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd love to. Um, you can find... Uh, pretty much everything over at chrismoles.org, that's my website. And there are two free resources there that uh, are open to anybody. I publish a weekly blog and a weekly podcast called the PeaceWorks Podcast, uh, where I answer questions, talk about domestic violence and the gospel. And then there are uh, three options that are you know behind a paywall but are very beneficial, uh, have been over the years, Uh, to people helpers and to folks who are are struggling. The first is PeaceWorks University, which is an online membership site uh, for people helpers, uh, usually geared towards pastors, lay people, and biblical counselors. Uh, About 140 members. Uh, We have an online community and tons of resources, just tons of resources available to them, and I interact with them on a regular basis. The second is Equip. Equip is a coaching program That I co lead with my friend Leslie Vernick. Uh, The group is made up primarily of licensed counselors and therapists. And we talk about uh, emotional abuse and we work cases together. And then the last is Men of Peace. And Men of Peace is groups that I lead online for men who have admitted, acknowledged to being abusive, and want to pursue change. And we walk through in much more detail a lot of the things we've talked about today in regards to godly sorrow, worldly sorrow, transformation, acknowledging your sin, um, you know, that that type of thing. And we do those periodically. I'm in one term right now where I'm working with several men from around the country.
1: Wonderful. Well, Chris, I really just want to, again, thank you so much for being with me. I think the conversation was so enlightening, and I hope it was encouraging to the listeners. So thank you again for joining us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Before we let you go, I'd like to remind you to learn more about the Hope and Help Project by visiting my website, FaithfulSparrow.com forward slash project. You can check out the show notes from today's episode, complete with links to Chris's website and podcast. If you enjoyed today's conversation, I would be so thankful if you left a review for the show on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes release. And please don't keep the Hope and Help Project a secret. If you know someone who will benefit from listening to today's episode, please share it with them. Oh, and one more thing. If you're looking for Christ-centered Hope and Help, Go to faithfulsparrow.com forward slash email and you can learn more about the biblical counseling resources I share on a weekly basis. From videos, audios, articles, and recommended reading, these emails are designed to equip you to discover hope and help in your own life. Thanks so much for listening to today's show. Be sure to join us next time on the Hope and Help Project.